few minutes at uh, passages of Scripture that um, I've uh, promised to give you a portrait of a pastor. But we'll look and begin in the Old Testament. Look, if you would, at 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter number 16. Uh, I remember the day that um, Brother Mike was teaching Sunday school, and uh, when he was teaching Sunday school, he got onto this passage of Scripture, and uh, I got lost in it by virtue of, uh, I saw in it several things that I thought were were both appropriate and straightforward, and things that I thought could be a help uh, in my own future, and uh, I think that uh, maybe that time has, has arrived. Here it is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, and of course Samuel was the prophet, He said, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? And remember, the Lord is saying this to his prophet Samuel, uh, because Samuel was mourning over the the, um, death of Saul. Actually, the setting aside of Saul is really, I think, what most of the mourning was, was about. And his confession is found back in chapter number 15 where the Lord set him aside. So the idea is laying him aside, not using him. So before he says, uh, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I want you to fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So here Saul has been set aside from uh, uh, leading Israel. And um, Saul or Samuel is very bothered by it as a prophet. He's bothered that he cannot, um, you know, um, I think he liked the guy, very frankly. Uh, I know he warned Israel, gave him a whole list of things why you don't want certain men to reign over you. But when it came down to it, it seemed like he took an allegiance to Saul. And so there's obviously some emotional attachment to it. And maybe he's just disappointed for the sake of Israel. Whatever the case is, the Lord's had enough of his mourning. And he says to him, I want you to stop that. And I want you to fill your horn with oil. And I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite's house. and For I have provided me a king among his sons. And then Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Take a heifer with it and say, I'll come to sacrifice to the Lord and so forth. Samuel, verse number 4, Samuel did that, which the Lord commanded him. In verse number 5, and said, Peacefully he's come to the community to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. In verse 6, it came to pass when they were come, he looked on Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, um, you need to get the picture that uh, Samuel's operating as God's man, his spokesman, and he's come to anoint the next king of Israel. And um, in doing so, the Lord's told him exactly where he lives. He, he's in the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the fact is that uh, that's where I'm going to get my king. And um, and Samuel is still thinking in terms of dealing with Saul, and he's fearful of him, afraid he'll find out where he's going, why he's come, and he'll kill him. So the Lord says to him, you just do as I tell you. You take the sacrifice, and as you sacrifice, then you invite these people to come. And um, um, I'm confident that the ideal of setting apart Jesse and his sons and sanctifying them was instruction from the Lord to set them apart so that they would come and be, as it were, open and receptive to what God's doing. God's got a plan, and he wants you to be set apart so you can listen to it and, and you can take it to heart. 
it's the same thing Brother Mike was saying a few moments ago about the morning service and what we were sharing with you concerning the will of God. There's a certain sense in obedience to those truths will set you apart and make it possible for you to make right choices and good decisions, and the one concerning a pastor will be right at the top. So the thing about it is it throws a burden on everybody to, as it were, to walk with the Lord and, and let the Lord work through you to help the church as a body corporately to make sure you make the right choice. In this particular case, as we're talking about the portrait of a pastor, this is the painter of the portrait. The portrait that the Lord is, is painting, it starts with this point and this principle, is the very one we've been hammering, and Brother Mike has also, and that is... God has his pick. We have to find him. Sometimes the Lord will say he's over Jesse's house, and you go over there and, and you look over his sons, and when those sons are brought before you, then then uh, we'll pick him out. Well, that's exactly what Samuel does. And so in verse number 6, uh, the very first one that shows up, and he may have seen him among the others, Eliab is there. And when Samuel sees him, Samuel, a prophet of God, under God's direction, is come to, to to anoint a king, and he says, surely this is the guy right here. I mean, the first guy up on the block, this is the guy. And the Lord has to tell him, no, this is not the guy. That's not the guy. So verse number 7, the Lord said to Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Well, the story goes on, and as it goes on, they find out that he's gone through all of Jesse's sons. In verse number 11, Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till we come thither. He come thither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The point made about this is it's the same setting and circumstance. There it is. It's God's picking a, a king for Israel. And uh, picking a king for Israel, Israel had, uh, so to speak, gotten themselves in the first bout with a king when they got Saul. And they looked at Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above all the other people. He looked like a ready-made kind of guy. I don't know how many of you have seen the, uh, the, the uh, clips on the news of this guy, Comey, who's the, uh, who got fired under President uh, Trump. I don't know if you've seen this guy. But you ever see him walk through the hall with the other people? He's like a seven-foot fall ball player looking down on all these other people. He, he's the tallest guy you ever seen. He just looks like he belongs in government. I mean, he's just a big guy. You know, he, be he belongs here. He's looking down on everything. I say to you that that's basically what it was with Saul. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. And when you saw him, evidently the Israelites were impressed. Look at this guy. So the Lord starts out his conversation with Samuel. Don't look on the outward countenance. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking at his heart. So the Lord paints the first point of the portrait to say that what you look for in a pastor is look for his heart. It's not how he, so much he looks. Uh, he may not be the best recommendation for uh, um, wearing a suit, which I'm not. 
I, I just wear what I have and hope it works, and it does. And my wife picks my ties, and they always match. But I can't tell you what else matches. I don't know anything about that stuff. The point made is it has nothing to do with how you really present yourself in the strictest sense of the word. That's not the big issue. The bigger issue is to make sure that thing of the heart is right. So God tells uh, Samuel, uh, here's my man, he is David, and it's because it's my business, my work. I'm, I'm the God of Israel. I've picked my man, and I want you now to anoint him and certify that he's my choice. So in this story, the thing that is to be taken away in these verses is to simply understand that God makes a choice for his work. If the New Life Baptist Church is his work, is his church, he's the one that should make the call. Not you and me. We should just simply be, as Mike said, we need to be attentive and walking with the Lord to the point we say, oh, this is obviously God's man. This is the man God sent. This is the guy. This is him. And we need to get on board. It's that simple. It's not and it should not create disunity. Anytime you find disunity in a church, you found something out of square and a joint out of place. Somebody is not right. There's no, there's no place for disunity in a fellowship. And the reason it usually is is because everybody tries to do their own thing about it. And God says, this is my work, just like Israel was my people, and I will pick their king. And now Jesse's house is where he's going to be, and so Samuel, you go down and you fill your horn with oil, and you go there, and I'll show you that my man. Now, as if that was just the only case in the whole of Scripture, we might say, well, there's a lot of holes in that, and we, we can't figure all the details out. But let me take you to the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter number 1. You have the setting and circumstances when the apostles are, are gathered. And uh, Judas, of course, has uh, bitten the dust. He's, um, he's hung himself. And now they're looking for someone as his replacement. And so in Acts chapter 1, look down to verse number 23. And the painter of the portrait here, uh, inspires the writers. And um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he says, And they appointed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, the men did, who were gathered to, do, to make this judgment, this decision. And they said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men. God's still working at the heart. He's not looking at the person. He may not be much to look at. But if he's got a heart for God, he's a good man. So the Bible says that they said, they prayed, Thou knowest the hearts of all men. And then they say, Show whether of these two thou hast chosen. So these apostles are uh, the work of God's hands and the choosing of his plan for carry out his work in the early church. And so they say, It's your call. Now, you have a pick. You show us who you've picked. You show us who you've chosen. You put it out here before us. And so verse number 23, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. They gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What's important to catch is it's the same principle as the Old Testament passage. It's to say that God had a, a plan for Israel, and uh, Israel was his people, and he wanted to pick the king. And with no, so doing, he comes to the New Testament, and the apostleship and the apostles and the disciples of these twelve were God's choosing. He picked them. And what he said was, I want to be the guy who picks the one who takes Judas's place. 
So the men who waited upon the Lord in this, the apostles prayed, and they said, you know who you've chosen, and, and you show us who you've got. Here's the prayer for you to pray. Lord, you show us the man that you've chosen. That's your prayer. You show us which one you've chosen. And not on us. Don't put a burden on a bunch of people who don't know the hearts of anybody. I don't know yours, and you don't know mine. So you can't judge that. But that's a criteria for the painter who paints the portrait of a pastor. Somebody's got to know his heart, because that's what's going to drive him to be a good pastor or a sorry pastor. And may I tell you, as I told the deacons when I uh, handed over my uh, my uh, letter of retirement, I... Um, I told them of two cases, big churches, that made major mistakes in changing pastors. They made major mistakes in it. And I say to you, there, there really is no call for that unless somebody was trying to manipulate who they got. And if you try to manipulate the system, you'll get a problem. You can bank on it. And that's why it's important for God's people to make sure that they spend much time in secret, privately, as family members, individuals, and as a church that you pray fervently that God shows you the next guy. And in that, that particular case comes to the rest of the story. Let me take you from this passage in Acts down, if you would, to 1 Timothy and chapter 1. Here's the person of the portrait. This is uh, the person of the portrait. The, the, the painter of the portrait is the Lord. He's the one that tries to show us exactly what he's looking for. And then here you have someone who would qualify for that. Let me read this. This passage is uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly or exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. There was uh, someone, this is uh, in a magazine that I got years and years ago, and I cut it out then, thought someday it might be appropriate, and it probably is now. A certain church found itself suddenly without a pastor, and a committee was formed to search for a new man. In due course, the committee received a letter from a clergyman applying for the position. The letter went like this. Gentlemen, understand that your pulpit is vacant. I should like to submit my application. I am generally considered to be a good preacher. I have been a leader in most of the places I have served. I have also found time to do some writing on the side. I am over 50 years of age, and while my health is not the best, I still manage to get enough work done so as to please my parishioners. As for the references, I am somewhat handicapped. I have never preached any place for more than three years, and the churches I have preached in have generally been pretty small, even though they were located in very large cities. In some places, I had to leave because my ministry caused riots and disturbances. And even where I stayed, I did not get along too well with other religious leaders in the town, which may influence the kind of references these places will send to you. 
I have also been threatened several times and even physically attacked. Three or four times I have gone to jail for witnessing to my convictions. Still, I feel sure I can be and bring vitality to your church. Even though I am not particularly good at keeping records, I have to admit I don't even remember all those whom I have baptized. However, if you can use me, I should be pleased to be considered. End of quote. Hearing the letter read aloud, the committee members were aghast. How could anyone think that a church like ours could consider a man who has nothing but a troublemaker, an absent-minded kind of guy, an ex-jailbird, what in the world was in this man's thoughts that he would think we would consider him? Well, said the chairman of the committee, the letter was signed, the Apostle Paul. Now, the thing about that is, there's truth in it. It may be a bit leaning here and there, but uh, there's much to that. And yet it's Paul who wrote just what I read to you, which is uh, what I consider uh, revealing within the context of uh, what he's recorded under inspiration, I think has the portrait of what God expects of his man who stands in the pulpit to minister as a shepherd of a flock. By the way, there's another story. This one is not true, I'm sure, but it does set for a uh, sense of perspective. There was a church in Massachusetts who was also looking for a pastor. That is, uh, uh, some of the members of the church decided that it's time for their pastor to leave. So consequently, a group of them got together and began to talk about the kind of guy they'd like to have. And uh, as they did and they checked around and so forth, um, word got out that they might be interested in, in looking for another pastor, even while the pastor was still pastoring. And what happened was, that uh, these people who made contact to the church, uh, they began to ask about the guy, and the more they did, they saw there were several churches interested in getting him. The committee got back together and decided they wouldn't do it. They'd give him a raise. So they gave the guy a raise and said, we want you to stay here. And uh, the pastor was elated. He had no idea his job was in jeopardy in the first place, so he was elated. He got a raise, and, and it seemed like everything's going good. So when the committee was called to the carpet and the, and the, the people in these uh, surrounding churches who wanted the guy, they made a contact with the chairman and said, uh, you, you were talking about the pastor going, and you were pretty pleased that he was. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know. I said, well, what changed your mind about the whole thing? And they said, well, you say, look, we know the guy is not a good pastor. We don't believe a word he says. We know that. And we were afraid if he went from here, he'd go somewhere. And wherever he went, they might believe him. And we'd save the world if we keep him right here in our church, though we know that he's not the kind of guy you ought to have. I have heard that story and thought, oh, that's so far-fetched, that's not even, even possible. Oh, yes, it is. There's a church maybe a couple hundred miles from here that the pastor and the people have a somewhat of an understanding. Church doesn't like him. He doesn't like them. But he is so far out on some things that the church has made a decision to keep him there until he retires. Because they think it would be safer for churches because they think themselves sophisticated and comprehensive of theological truth that what he's teaching and what he's saying, they'll just keep him there until he retires or dies, and then they'll get a real pastor. Now, that seems extreme to us, and I certainly don't recommend such a foolish and crazy thing. But I say this, that's how some churches look at this thing, is that, um, you know, if you get a bad pastor in, how do you get rid of the guy without making a real scene of the thing and a real mess concerning people's observing you and watching you and wonder how in the world you come to a conclusion to get that guy in your pulpit? So I say to you that it has a much far 
reaching effect than just on New Life Baptist Church. The people in this community will know whether you've got the right man or not. So while you pray and seek God's face about it, and there's extreme beliefs in preachers and people, and you need to be sure that you seek the Lord to the point that you have a common common perception and discernment about the one that is for you. Look at the story in First Timothy. It's not so much a story as it is in essence a testimony. And I want you to see two or three things in, in this thing that I think personally, and this is my personal observation, I believe this is a, it gives us a good perspective, and I kept the notes that I'd had from years back uh, to use in this particular um, um, passage of Scripture as my own personal model. That is, I look at it occasionally and read through the text and think over the things that I'd written and some things that uh, other folks had written that I jotted down about it. First thing, I would tell you that this portrait sets forth uh, a pastor with gratitude. And I believe personally that uh, the pastor that uh, the Lord brings to New Life Baptist Church, by his own willingness, would be a, a man of gratitude. You see, where the passage begins in verse number 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. There's a, uh, an air of thankfulness here, and it's a, an attitude that uh, ought to bleed over into everything else. And here's the catch about that, and this is something we preachers somehow miss, and often miss, and I think I missed it when I first started the ministry, that we have a sense of deserving. If you go to a Bible college and you graduate with any sense of uh, any degree of good grades, there's a sort of sense that you just expect that some church is going to pick you up. You know, you're just you're going to go out there and and one day somebody's going to call you and say, "Hey, would you pastor our church?" And 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 it'll just happen, and and it often does. But the fact of the matter is that's uh, uh, that's not the way it always happens. Sometimes there's some uh, good men who go through school and and get all the training that any other preacher has gotten but they don't get a pulpit. And so they sort of meander through life, and they have opportunities in local churches to teach and to share whatever they can in regard to what gift they may perceive them having. But the fact is that they realize that they missed it. They wanted a church. They went to school to be a preacher, a pastor. And uh, one of the things that um, has uh, always been an uppermost thought of my mind is the privilege that the Lord has given me to pastor over the years that I have. Not just here at New Life, but over the years of the other churches we were privileged to pastor. Pastoring is a great privilege. And the fact of the matter is, there needs to be within every pastor who stands in a pulpit an attitude of gratitude. You know, He just needs to be grateful that uh, God saw fit from his own perspective to put him into a pastoring. And his life needs to reflect it. And one of those ways that uh, it's reflected, and I think uh, one of the things that um, the spirit of attitude of gratitude shows up, I think there are three things, and they're, they're said in this kind of context. First, you recognize the source of that calling. It's he counted me faithful. I didn't count me faithful, and he didn't turn to other people counting him faithful. It was the Lord himself who said he was faithful. And he put him in the ministry. 
And I don't think Paul was bragging. I think Paul was testimonially giving you what uh, the Lord had laid on his heart and shown him on what basis of criteria that God chose him. And I think Paul was a faithful man. And I believe in this context he's acknowledging that he counted me faithful. He enabled me, and then he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The second thing that's noticeable, that uh, you recognize uh, uh, the, the character uh, God making this possible, and it frames up in two words. Look in the, the text again. He comes into verse number 14. Uh, he says, and first of all, to appreciate these two words, you need to get verse 13, because in verse 13 he said, Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And, uh, and then he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant, with faith and love, which in Christ Jesus, which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, how be it for this cause, and that is the cause of verse 15, him being a sinner, alienated from the Lord, and under condemnation, he obtained mercy. So Paul makes the point that the characteristics of which God worked in his life was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the mercy that is in first found, as it were, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point made about those two things is that they speak highly of the fact that God is, uh, is uh, willing to invest in this preacher. This preacher that has an attitude of gratitude, God will often show grace and mercy and uh, work in his life and work with him in his ministry, uh, help him being effective as God has called him. Paul acknowledges that. And also notice the third thing is here that um, he returns all the glory to God. In all the emphasis of this text, verse number 17, he closes it off with one of the great uh, um, benedictions of the text of Scripture, and that is, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the fact is, here you have a, a picture uh, or a portrait of a, of a biblical pastor, that is God's choosing of a pastor. And uh, in this choosing, what you have is uh, the Apostle Paul then giving these uh, areas of characteristics that the grace of God, the mercy of God were evident and worked in his life, and the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who orchestrated that. And then also recognizing that um, he was not deserving. It was something he uh, he got that had uh, nothing of his merit to, wasn't anything he did to earn this right. And it was something of which he was constantly reminded of the great honor it was to be placed in this position. So those are the things. And then he finishes off with giving all the glory to God. And that is something that every pastor in his right mind would do. There's no pastor who'd stand in a full pulpit and think that what he sees happen among people, any changes of maturity and growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or a person repenting of his sin and turning to faith in Christ, has anything to do with the pastor except that he's a conveyor of God's Word. It's God's Word that brings forth the fruit. It's what God does with His Word. It's not a pastor's you know, ingenuity or his invented ideals or his creativity that makes it all possible. God uses those things, but what's important to note, and I believe Paul is emphasizing that in this text, is that Paul recognizes it's the Lord doing that work. So a thing about gratitude is to understand there's so little of it that's being accomplished by uh, the individual who stands in a pulpit, and most of it's accomplished by, in fact, yea, verily, all of it is accomplished by the work of God in an individual's heart. It's also to be noted in this that um, there's a, what I call a, a sense of uh, um, 
uh, what you might graduation of it. Look at verse number 13. When Paul speaks about uh, the issue of who he was, and he says, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. Uh, in the Greek language, those sort of are, are calibrated. They go upward. You know, the first one uh, is really something of words. He blasphemed. What he did was, in the early going, he, uh, he denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's big. That's a big deal. Uh, and that's considered blasphemous. But those are just words. When he gets to the word persecutor, uh, it's used a, a physical power uh, to somehow uh, he tried to destroy the church, uh, the early church. He tried to destroy it, and uh, the reason was the threats of murder and all the emphasis he placed on doing um, harming, harming, harmful things, I guess is the way to put it, that the people were intimidated and uh, so Paul, as Saul then, was uh, breathing out threatenings, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9. He was doing everything he could to persecute, to slow down the work of the early church. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, that included some suffering and uh, inflicting on people who had confidence in their belief system, which in Saul's case, he had an Old Testament perception, and he was loyal, and uh, much of the New Testament epistles, he reveals himself in Philippians when he talks about who he was and how he identified himself. He was talking about all this loyalty he had to the Old Testament. When he saw these Christians come along, and they had a new loyalty, and that loyalty was centered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul went nuts. And Paul's idea was to collect these people, throw them in prison, shut down their, their churches, and, and intimidate them to the point they won't ever breathe another word. And so the consequence was that uh, Paul became a, a main player in how the early church would be faring and how it would go forward. And then the third thing about it is in this verse when he uses the word injurious, uh, that word injurious has the ideal of, of painful cruelty. Painful cruelty. And what he says is, in this case, it would uh, uh, the word in the Greek language would be the modern equivalent of the word bully. Boy, in our society in the last few years has really taken up this idea of bullying. And yet that's what this word would symbolize that he became. And not just in the context of threatening attitude and so forth, it was painful cruelty that he used to bully people into doing what he wanted them to do. And, of course, we know that uh, uh, it was his trip to Damascus when he was going there to put some Christians in prison that uh, his conversion took place. That's what this passage is about in First Timothy. Uh, Paul is saying, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before... And he talks about him being a blasphemer, he talks about him being a persecutor, and he talks about him being an injurious or, or a bully. He says then, under conditions of these, I obtained mercy. I did it out of ignorance and unbelief. Now, Paul is not pleading and pleading that you and I can plead ignorance and unbelief as basis of not being saved and somehow God just sort of lavishing mercy on you. That's not what he's calling here. It's the same thing that happened when Christ hung on the cross. When Christ hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His idea is a similar word used. In effect, they're ignorant. Father, forgive them for they are ignorant. Well, he didn't mean to say all of their sins are forgiven and when they die they'll go to heaven. That's not what it was. 
what Jesus Christ was pleading for these people was, what they're presently doing is in, in ignorance. What that says from the cross is the Lord Jesus could have just as easily said, I'm asking you to give them time. Give them time. Don't kill them on the spot. I mean, after all, here's the Son of God hanging on the cross, and he's being abused, and he's being uh, cruelly treated, and, and he's being uh, treated less than human, and he's hanging on the cross, and he's bleeding. He's a crown of thorns on his head and uh, spikes in his hands and in his feet, and, uh, and he is, is a mess. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And uh, I think any of us would be surprised that the Father in Heaven didn't reach down and blast the place with, with lightning and earthquakes and whatever else to kill all these people who are doing this such a wicked thing to the Son of God. But the Lord Jesus, hanging on the cross, says to His Father, in the midst of all His pain and agony, forgive them because they don't understand what to do it. He wasn't saying they were going to be saved. He didn't mean promise that they would, uh, uh, you know, when we get to heaven they'll all be there. He's not saying that. He's saying, forgive them. In essence, give them time. And maybe, just maybe, some of those people who stood there that day and did all those cruel things to the Lord Jesus were eventually turned to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know. We can't read between the lines and we can't hear the tale of the stories. But the fact is that uh, that's the essence of what the Apostle Paul is saying in uh, verse number 15 or verse number 13, that he did what he did out of ignorance. There's a second word, and I need to hurry to get through all of these. There's a second word in this passage of Scripture and also other passages of Scripture. And it's not only an attitude of gratitude that every pastor ought to have, and he ought to be humbled by the position that he's being given and uh, how a person looks at that position if he shows humility about it, uh, so to speak, there's hope for him. If he comes to it with an attitude that I'm deserving of it, uh, you've got problems from the get-go. So in Paul's case, he understands that all of this comes about because of the Lord's work and choosing him, placing him in this position. And with that, he says it's the operation of grace and the mercy of God. The second word is accountability. And uh, that is to say that um, what, um, what a pastor has to understand, and let me take you to another passage. I can get uh, to the truth a little faster this way. Look, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and look if you would, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, look down to verse number 17. In Hebrews 13, 17, you have uh, uh, several of these uh, words uh, in this passage of Scripture that uh, verse number 7 says, uh, Remember them which have the rule over you. And then uh, you have in uh, uh, verse number uh, 24, you have um, uh, salute all them that have the rule over you. But in verse number 17, note carefully, he says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now watch carefully. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And writing the book of Hebrews, uh, he uses this very word, account. You must, they must give account. So every pastor of every church uh, must give account for those who they are being given leadership of. Now, with that understood, accountability is a big deal. 
Now, every pastor worth his salt uh, will want his board of deacons to help him stay accountable. And I've asked our deacons, and our deacons have looked and watched and kept an eye on the pastor of the church, make sure things are right. And the issue of that is is to make sure that nothing slips by that might have even an appearance of something not good. So in Paul's case, he understood that it's important for there to be accountability. And I say to you that in the ministry, uh, it can't function right without it. And I say to you that Paul, in his picture here in uh, the passage of 1 Timothy, is to set forth the, the same idea, that is to understand that uh, he puts in verse number 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The first thing is he understands who his accountability is for and to. Every pastor needs to understand that. My first accountability is not to the board of deacons. My first accountability is not to the members of the New Life Baptist Church. My first accountability is to the Lord God who called me to the ministry. And any pastor who forgets that or gets that out of order, if he starts being first accountable to people, he'll find himself being pushed in the direction of what they think is best for you to do or say or preach. If it comes to a matter of a beacon board, they have perspective about things that they would think would be better to do it this way than this way and so forth. It comes to a thing with a pastor, he has to make his mind up who he is first accountable to. And he has to make sure that he does not vary from that because if he can't be true to his own conscience concerning his own responsibility of accountability, he's not going to be worth much to you. He'll be as... Uh, He'll be like the wind, the wind that drives the waves of the sea, or the wind that moves the limbs of a tree. It never gets its stability, never knows what you can expect. But a man who sets his course that he's first and foremost accountable to God, and his right relationship with God is borne out through that, you'll find out that he will be a man of his word. And he'll be the same on Sunday as he is on Monday. If he's not that way, he's undependable. You can't trust him. You can't depend on him. Because you don't know who got his ear. You don't know who pressed the most. And you don't know who pushed the most. And who pressed him to do or say or preach on a certain thing. But if he knows he's accountable to God and he has to answer to God for what he does, it's far above anything a man can do. I have said it before, and it's not a it's not a slash or a sling. I've never feared the, the New Life Baptist Church. I fear God. And I say to you that any pastor who does not fear God first should never get in your pulpit. Accountability is a priority, and it's a priority that he understands fully and completely. His first priority of accountability is to the Lord. We take you to another passage, and we'll have this, and I may not get to the last note, but we'll, we'll leave with it. Look, if you would, at Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and look at that chapter number five. Second Corinthians, chapter number five. In Second Corinthians, chapter number five, you can uh, see in verse number eighteen, it says, "In all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation." Uh, even in that phrase, reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And he's talking about verse 18, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, that is, God has given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. So even for every single individual believer, you have accountability 
when it comes to the fact that you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Now, if you have to be moved to do that only by a, a secondary source, then there's a sense in which you're not being accountable. If you're waiting for somebody else to tell you to do something about reaching people with the gospel, there's a certain sense that you're not being accountable. We want to hold a pastor accountable and make sure he preaches the right thing and he does the right thing and he behaves in the right manner and he says it the right way, he acts in the right manner. and all. But whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. This passage of Scripture is about accountability on the part of every believer. So certainly a pastor's got to be accountable. Nobody questions that. But how can we be inconsistent and account him, be accountable, and we don't hold ourselves accountable? So you ask yourself this question. What have I done to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation that I have been given? Or make it more practical. What did you do this week to bring people into a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Now the answer to that question will show you where you are on accountability. And I say to you, be consistent. Because what happens and too often in the ministry, uh, pastors will find themselves in interview sections and we're meeting with deacon boards and, and the church members and men of the church, etc. And uh, we'll be asking this guy to be accountable when we know we haven't been. So what Brother Mike was saying earlier about us being in tune with the Lord and making sure we're walking with Him and doing the right thing and we have done the Lord's will is a primary thing because if we show inconsistency, if He gets to ask you a question, which obviously He should, then He can say to you, do you obey Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 18? Are you accountable to the Lord? Are you fulfilling that in your life? Or he can pick hundreds of other verses of Scripture. The point about this one is, this one is such a, a practical, uh, normal, usual, common expression of uh, fulfilling the work of the ministry on the part of believers that this carries weight that some of the others would not carry. There's something to note here. Um, if, if we fear men more than we fear God, you won't do the work of reconciliation. Because what you have to do is you have to, you have to talk to people, and if you fear those people, whether they be your friends, and you're afraid if you say what you need to say to them about them needing Christ as their Savior, you may lose their friendship. Uh, you have just sort of, sort of said to everybody, you're more afraid of people than you are accountable to God. God gave the order. Your job is the ministry of reconciliation. But you say, hey, I've got these friends, and man, if I told them that they're sinners and they, they need Christ and they need to be saved, and, and my goodness, they'd never speak to me again. Okay, so let's see, we got this. It would be all right for you to fear man, and you'd be manipulated by what they tell you and while they act towards you, but you would not want a pastor in the pulpit who was that way. You'd want him to hold ground, and you'd want him to stand the ground, and you'd want him to say the truth. I don't care who it hurt, and I don't care how much skin it would knock off your shins. You'd want him to preach the truth. I'm telling you, when he gets into calling a pastor, consistency on the part of every member is a big deal about accountability. It'd be like children trying to tell parents how to live. You say to parents, no, 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 no. Parents tell the kids how to live. That's right. 
But if the kids find out that the parents are not playing by the same rule, and that is the rules that God has set forth, not some of their own little funny, funny ideas, but doing what the Bible says a parent ought to do, not that a child has a right by any stretch. But it sure makes it easier when the parents are consistent before their children to fulfill the calling. There's other things in, in the text, and some of them we'll let go, but there's another one. And, and this one is a, a, a thing of, I, I think, uh, fulfilling uh, um, responsibilities in the ministry is one of those things that uh, I know in my own heart. There have been times when uh, um, I knew what was right to do, but I had a, a sense that the best thing to do would have been maybe to do it in a less challenging way. And before it all got finished, that is, before all the dust settled and all the dirt had fallen to the earth, uh, it became obvious the best thing to have done in the first place would just ride right through the storm and say what needed to be said and finish it off. Because sometimes uh, we know in circumstances uh, all through the ministry, pastors have to carry them and forget them, is that you know something is not right. You, just, you already know it's not right. You, you, you either have the evidence in hand or you have the testimony of two or three people who would stand up and give testimony to this not being right and here's how it was done. It wasn't done right. It was done wrong. And uh, the consequence of getting that taken care of is that um, it, it becomes a matter of uh, a pastor having to decide what's the best way to approach this thing that we can honor the Lord and we can restore the relationships that may have been broken in it and so forth. Now, in uh, saying that, uh, a pastor has to also weigh, uh, in the context of solving problems, he has to weigh the basis of how a matter is going to affect the long term and the broader, broader base of people. There are some things that might just affect one person, and when that happens, you just go to one person, you deal with that, and you fix it, and it's okay. Sometimes there's something that affects this family and fix this family and this family will be affected and this family will be affecting these two others over here if they get this thing dealt down or if this is addressed and dealt with uh, next thing you know it could run through the whole gamut of the church so there's some things as a pastor I've learned over the years uh, you pray and say to the Lord I'll be glad to step in at any level with anybody and be accountable to you to how we solve this problem but we don't want to damage good people. So you show me what we need to do and how we need to, to fix this thing, and uh, I'll do it, and I'll deal with it, and I will move forward. The thing about that is sometimes uh, it gets partially fixed, but not fully. And because there are partial fixes and not complete fixes, sometimes the pastor takes it on the chin that he didn't get this thing worked out. And the reason behind it, in my case, in point would be because it created more problems if I were to go through the whole system of everybody involved in these things to deal with it. It would hurt more damage done than the initial thing that was carried out in the first place. So with a pastor, you have to understand accountability is a matter that I'm first accountable to the Lord, and it's his church, and he has to give direction how we best solve something not to multiply the problem. And I say to you, with a new pastor coming in, he... Uh, he needs to be a man who would follow the third thing, and it would affect that second thing. The first thing, of course, is a man of gratitude. The second one is a man under accountability. The third one is a man under maturity. A maturity. Uh, I often refer to myself as a, a bull in a china shop, and I am. Uh, I just have a typical 
personality, just wade right into it and just deal with it and let's get it done and move on from that. That's what it's taken some time in the work, the ministry here at New Life Baptist Church for me to be a bit more careful. Sometimes wading into it is not the right thing to do at that given moment. It sometimes is better to wait on the Lord and let Him sort out some of the things that could be seen and understood that at the front end is not so obvious and not so clear. Uh, look at one verse and we'll, we'll get you out of here. Look over again to First uh, Timothy. This time look over further to chapter number 3. And uh, talking about the qualifications in chapter 3, verse number 6 of a bishop. And he says of that bishop, he says he's not to be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Uh, obviously in the ideal of a novice, and by the way, it says basically the same thing about deacons over in chapter 3 and verse 10, where he talks about them being first proved. In this case of verse 6, it would be the similar concept that not to pick a novice, someone who's never uh, done anything in regard to the ministry, or else there will be an issue of maturity and maturity of being able to handle some of the things that are in, and inevitable to come up in a local church. Also, uh, you'll find out very quickly um, about um, a novice is that he typically will not uh, have a right reaction to people when he is criticized. Uh, older you are in the ministry and older you are in the Christian faith, you'll understand that, you know, uh, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you if your accountability is to the Lord. You know, understand that you're trying to serve Him, do what you believe He wants you to do, then you won't let people's words hurt you and offend you. I've told you before, uh, I, I cannot be offended. You can't offend me, and I've told you that often through the years I've been his pastor. I'm not one that's easily offended, and um, um, I, can, I can be hurt, but typically hurt comes only from the people who would be closest to me. I can be hurt, but I can't be offended. You couldn't say anything that I, I would probably assume every bit of what you'd say about me is true. Uh, you, you know, he doesn't look good. He's not a nice guy. He's he's he preaches too long. He's uh, he's not my ideal weight. He's he's got the wrong color hair. I don't like a guy with glasses. I don't I don't like a guy who can't hear well. I fail every test. You get set, and you'd be absolutely right. Or you'd say I don't enjoy the way he preaches. I don't like his style. I don't, and you'd be right. You have every right to a choice. But the fact of the matter is. What a what a, a pastor has to learn is don't be a novice at this thing. Don't don't let people's criticism of you cause a reaction from you that's wrong. That's what's important, and that's the leg of maturity that comes that a, a, a young pastor uh, has to catch on for. By the way, um, uh, one of these things that that often uh, comes up in the ministry is. Um, People ask me, are you going to get back at somebody who's, who's, you know, I've told you before, I had a man sat in my office and he was going to leave the church and he came by and uh, he wanted to talk to me and when he made the contact he was going to talk to me, I thought he was just going to, you know, share his, some of his reasons why he was leaving and he didn't. He sat in a chair in front of me and um, as I tell people who ask, uh, he called me everything but a white man. I mean, he had nothing good to say about me and so forth. And I sat there. And I just let him talk. And uh, he stopped for just a moment. When he stopped, I got up and I said, are you finished? And stuck out my hand. I shook hands with him and he left. Now, it's for sure, I don't look forward to seeing the guy around. That's for sure. But at the same time, uh, I'm sure he was upset about something. And none of what he talked about that day made any much sense. But the point is, 
Uh, I learned a long time ago, there's no place to get revenge on somebody. The pastor is not a place, the pulpit's not a place to get revenge, you know. And sometimes uh, a young novice will use it that way. This is not a coward's castle. What a pastor says about things and about circumstances, he ought to be willing to say it to the people engaged in the circumstance. A pulpit's not a coward castle. He doesn't need to hide behind a, a box of wood. He needs to say what's on his mind that would be honoring to the Lord to advance the cause of Christ. And if he does that, he'll gain ground both with respect of the people and he'll accomplish what he needs to. Also, there's the, the thing of uh, responding uh, with forgiveness to those who offend a pastor. Now, I've already said I'm not one to be offended, so I'm not a guy who carries my feelings on my sleeves. But there are some pastors who need uh, encouragement, and they need it from the standpoint that they somehow, just like you, uh, have a down day. Just things aren't going quite the way they ought to. And um, he didn't have to be a novice to get into this mode, but he can get to a point where he needs to hear from somebody in the church just to say a good thing about him. Just one day. Just to say and maybe call him up. Maybe just say, hey, are you having a good day? And if you're not, I'm praying for you. I can't tell you the number of times at the New Life Baptist Church that I have uh, received a call, an email, or a contact. Who said, I don't know how your day's going, but just wanted to say how much we're praying for you and appreciate you. For a pastor, that's a, that's a major shot in the arm. I mean, really, it just can make your day. So whenever you get a pastor and you've convinced that you've got the portrait of one who has an attitude of gratitude and one who, without any doubt, <clears throat> is a man under accountability to God first, and third, a man who shows maturity of his faith. Do everything you can to encourage him to keep on keeping on to the glory of God. And don't let him ever think that, um, you know, he can quit and everything will still be just as good as it was. Don't let him think that. You encourage him. You stand with him. You love him. And even when he falls flat on his nose, uh, you tell him you understand. You understand. And I would remind you that uh, that uh, what Paul said at the beginning here, when he thanked the Lord and his enabling him and putting him in the ministry and uh, reminding us of the things that he mentions about himself, and he says who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an injurious. Um, and then he talks about the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying uh, that applied to him. There was a pastor who uh, I read a testimony of his that the pastor went to uh, a church and became uh, a pastor of a bigger church than he was in the first place where he had gathered for several years. And uh, a lady who was at the church where he grew up uh, came to visit the, the new church where he was pastoring. And this true story. And uh, hey, she was... Um, 
recognized in the service. This is Mrs. So-and-so. She taught me when I was a, a young man in uh, Sunday school, and, and she's come from another church over the way, and she's come to be here today, and, and I'm honored to have her here. She played an important role in my life, and, and I just wanted to stand. And he had her stand in the services, and people, you know, they looked at her, and, and uh, she was just beaming from ear to ear. And as the service went on and uh, it came to a conclusion, uh, he noticed several people around her. And uh, he was curious what they might be asking, so he just sort of wandered back and was listening over uh, her shoulder. Her back was to him, and he just got close enough he could hear. And one of them said, well, now that you've come and you've heard our pastor, who you taught in Sunday school, uh, and you were with him in the early days when he was a young man, and, and now he's pastoring, what do you think about it? And she said, it's a miracle of the grace of God. And she went on to say, he was the meanest kid we had in the Sunday school. He was the worst attitude we had ever seen in our church. We thought on occasion of putting him in a room and a deacon teaching. Just bring him to Sunday school, put him in a room, put a deacon in with him, and every deacon had to transition every week, every new deacon every week. And one of the men asked, said, why would you do that? She said, because we were afraid the deacons would quit. And so we transitioned to deacons to teach him week after week. And she said, but one day, a wonderful day, said his heart broke. And when it did, God changed him. And she said, you can't believe what I feel in my heart having sat in the service and hear him preach. May I tell you, that's uh, the joy ride of the ministry, is to see God take a life, change it, get glory from it, and use that life to change the lives of other people. That's the portrait of a pastor. A biblical pastor, his heart is to help and work with what God gives him in the ministry to help change lives for the glory of God. And I say to you that... uh, You can be in that journey with him with your prayers, your support, and anything and everything you can do that would encourage that. The Lord gives credit and reward. So I hope that you get on board. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. And I pray, Father, as we dismiss our services here and we have the meeting with the deacons, I pray you'll guide and direct through that. Bless Brother Mike and Brother John and Daniel, who are not here as they lead the program and the transition. I pray you'll guide and direct them and pray that you'll help the New Life Baptist Church to be uh, walking in your footprints and your steps. And I pray that we'll, Father, have a sense of uh, seeking your will over our own. And I pray that you'll use the New Life Baptist Church to set great precedent for other churches in the selection of a new pastor. And I do pray that you'll make known to our people uh, the next pastor that you want to stand in this pulpit and proclaim the word and lead the church. So we look to you, and we ask you to do as you, uh, Father, were asked to do among those uh, apostles. Show us the one you have chosen. We know it's your work, just like uh, Israel was your people, and uh, you wanted very much for them to have the king of your choosing, and you wanted that band of apostles to have the man that you had chosen. And, uh, Father, they selected that man, Matthias. I know that you have a man for the New Life Baptist Church, and I pray help our men, our ladies who come to the final vote, 
Whenever that day comes, I pray, help them, Father, to have a discerning spirit about the person that you've brought in to be your pastor in the New Life Baptist Church. We commit them to you and to your care. Guide our people. Give them a good night's rest and bless and use them for your glory this week. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.